0: You're listening to the From the Hack Curling Podcast, part of the Curling News and Sports Illustrated Partnership. Hi everyone, my name is Frank Rock and welcome to the From the Hack Curling Podcast. In this episode, we chat with two members of the four-time Scotties Champions Team Anderson, and we also chat with a Briar and World Champion who coaches one of the top women's teams in Canada. Hello everyone, thank you for joining me once again. My name is Frank Rock. My first guests this week are Carrie Anderson and Shannon Burchard, who recently won their fourth consecutive Scotties title in Kamloops and will now represent Canada at the Women's Worlds in Sweden. So Carrie, winning a Scotties is always a goal for a team at your level, but how does the reaction or feelings change when it's your fourth in a row? Do you still feel a sense of excitement or is it more of a sense of relief now because they're trying to defend the title each year?
1: Oh, um, I still feel that excitement. Um, the goosebumps that go through my body uh, when you hear the crowd roar and uh, it never gets old. Um, it just, it feels like our first, um, you know, when you're uh, t- wanting to tie records and things like that. And uh, it's still a very, very special moment.
0: What about you, Shannon? You're now five for five with the Scotties. Have the emotions that come with winning the Scotties change for you over that stretch?
2: No, it's it's super special and each time I would say is definitely um unique. Um, but each year we go into the Scotties with kind of a different objective. Um and you know, obviously the first time we went as a team was we wanted to accomplish winning um it as a team and that had been like our big goal coming together and joining. Um, but now yeah, this year it was definitely chasing that four-in-a-row title, and obviously trying to get back to Worlds because we want to uh, compete for that gold medal at the Worlds.
0: So, Kerry, this was your third Scotties as Team Canada, but it was the first one with crowds in attendance throughout the week after the pandemic had limited the numbers of uh, people allowed in the venue in both 2021 and 22. How different of an experience was it being Team Canada at a Scotties when there are crowds throughout the week? Because from what I've heard, uh, it's a different vibe because Team Canada tends to be the second-favorite team after the home team
1: Oh, it was definitely uh, different. Um yeah, that roar of the crowd when you're walking out or when they're introducing us, um, it's pretty special. And to finally get that feeling is uh um unbelievable. And um yeah, I would like to say that we we were one of the crowd favorites and um um we had also a lot of um family and friends there too to cheer us on so it was a very special moment
0: in your case shannon this was your third scotties title uh, playing in front of a crowd Uh, do you take a few moments during big games at an event like the scotties to soak in the moment uh, shannon now i realize the focus always on the next shot i get that but i'm wondering if you allow yourself a moment here and there to look around and soak in the atmosphere a little bit
1: um
2: yeah definitely before the game i like to kind of peek around and, and check out the crowd and, and see who's got, you know, signs up and, and uh, just, you know, take in the ambiance of the arena. Um, and then sometimes, you know, most, most of the time I've got the blinders on in a game, but every once in a while on those big shots, it's really fun to, you know, really take in the the roar of the crowd or um, sometimes there's some really live, um, really great fans. We had a, we had an awesome fan that, you um, came to every single one of our games this year. We called him the Gimli guy because he had this Gimli sign and he was always um, cheering us on saying, go team Gimli. Um, And he was awesome. Um, And uh, you could always figure out where he was in the crowd and hear him out there. And so we we just love having that kind of support and it's really cool. And we definitely make sure that we take notice um, each and every time we have um, that kind of support.
0: Now, before we get too deep into this interview, uh, I want to touch on something you did, Carrie. Following the Scotties final, you gave your lead, Brienne Harris, a trophy that you were given as MVP of the Scotties. To those in our audience who may not have been paying close attention during the Scotties, Brienne was noticeably pregnant and swept a whole bunch during the week. How impressive was Brienne at the Scotties, Carrie? Brienne was absolutely
1: amazing. She, uh, um deserve that MVP award she gave it her all every single game and we never ever heard one complaint out of her um we also never ever asked her because she didn't want to be asked how she was feeling so we just kind of let her do her thing and she would come to us if she needed something or if she wanted to sit or you know um, but uh, she never ever did. She's pretty stubborn. So, <laughs> um, but she totally deserved that award. She swept her butt off, and uh, she played outstanding all week. And it's um, pretty amazing because it's not easy to play pregnant and uh, playing lead and sweeping as many rocks as she has. So, um, yeah. When I I had it already in my head that usually the skip gets the MVP award, and um, um it it shouldn't always be like that because it's uh, it's a it's four team or four person um uh game so um yeah my teammates are pretty amazing and uh i wouldn't be where i am today without them
0: shannon you went up and down the ice with uh, brianne throughout the week at the scotties how impressed were you with brianne's performance and what can be a grueling week for any curler never mind one that is expecting in a few months
2: Yeah, it was absolutely amazing. I mean, um, there were times when I forgot she was pregnant because it was just like it had always been, Um, and she didn't show any signs of, you know, wear and tear through the week. She was mentally in it from start to finish and physically in it from start to finish so um, yeah I was super proud of her for her effort and her play all week and I yeah I have no idea what it's like to play pregnant and I just can't imagine that it's easy so uh, I just have all the respect in the world for what she did out there.
0: Carrie, one last question on Brienne. Had you had a conversation with your alternate, Kristen Karwaki, uh, before the Scotties to ensure that she kept herself mentally ready to play each game or each day just in case she had to step in for Brienne, whether for a few ends or a full day or two of action?
1: Uh, we left that in Brienne's hands. Brienne was uh, going to tell, um, tell Reed and Kristen if she was wanting to sit, so that was totally up to her. Um, we never... Uh, Picked any games or anything like that. She came in once. Brianne decided to sit. Um, and then um, that was it. Uh, so it's all depending on how Brianne is feeling. But
0: Carrie, you just mentioned your coach, Reed Carruthers. Uh, what impact has he had on the way your team approaches games? And even how you might prepare off the ice in between games? I know that many people were commenting during the Scotties about the way he approaches timeouts with your team, where he steps in and is quite decisive with the advice he shares.
1: Yeah. Reed's been a huge asset for this team. Um, when he calls a timeout, he storms out there <laughs> with his strut and he just tells us, uh, what to play, how to ice it and how to do it. So, um, we really appreciate that. And I know it's like, sometimes like there's always two shots and, um, he'll just pick one and, uh, just throw him throat to make it. And, um, Even off ice, uh, just going back to our room, having a drink, just having some laughs and uh, joking around. And uh, he definitely keeps things light with this team.
0: So Shannon, your team had a great start in Kamloops going 8-0 in pool play, but sometimes a record can be deceiving. Were there a couple of games or a stretch of games during the week where you may have won the games, but it was a little more of a struggle than one would think from just seeing a scoreboard?
2: Um, yeah, I mean, I can kind of go to two games that week that we really had to grind through to get the win. And, and the first one was um, against Laws that first weekend. Um, we were kind of struggling in the first half and were able to uh, crack a three to tie it up going into, I think, the fifth end break. And and um, after that, we definitely had a lot of momentum and, and were able to kind of battle through and, and win in the extra. Um, that was a huge game for us because we knew that they were kind of Uh, the second ranked team in our pool and, and might be, you know, the deciding game on who qualifies first or second. Um, So that was a huge one for us and gave us a lot of momentum carrying forward. And then another game that we um, kind of had a slow start in was against Nova Scotia. And um, as you, and everybody saw, they had a fantastic week out there and they really um, challenged us uh, early on in the game. And we had a bit of a slow start, but we're able to grind it out and, and win in the end. But um, yeah, those are the two moments I would say in the round robin that we really had to fight through and and, you know, prove ourselves as a team that can, you know, stay in a game, even if it's tight or if we're trailing um, and come out on top.
0: Uh, Carrie, they retextured the Rocks uh, midway through the week, Uh, did it twice in fact. What kind of impact does that have on a team like yours? Uh, You spend the first part of the week finding your groove with the Rocks and then all of a sudden you have to readjust to the Rocks after they've been touched up.
1: Um, It definitely uh, didn't impact us. Um, And it definitely, uh, like the first time they touched them up, it didn't really make a big difference. The ice got extremely fast though that game. It took a bit for us to adjust to that. Um and then just kind of watching uh on TV the other games and uh noticing okay the second time that they touched it up it got um a little more swingier and and things like that and we were observing like how they were pebbling and if they were building up the sides and also just paying attention to those little details too. So and uh Reed would go to some of the games and watch and fill us in as well and uh yeah, it uh, it didn't impact us uh, a whole lot, and it it doesn't uh, affect the rocks um, like big. Di- make them a big difference, but um, yeah, we we adjusted
0: well to that. So, Shannon, your team was on point for pretty much the whole week. That said, can you walk us through what happened in the second end of your seeding game against Team Jones when things seemed to come off the rails a little bit? Although you did come back in that game and made it pretty close.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it was just a little bit. Uh, a misfortune at times um we like Val and I both had essentially four chances at a few runbacks and and we didn't connect on any of them and that just kind of left Carrie with a world of hurt um where otherwise in another end we probably um make at least one or two of those so um yeah that's kind of where we got into some trouble and um you never want to leave your skip drawing against four and and unfortunately it was just um execution at the end of the day um in that end and and i mean the rest of the game was stellar on both parts like the jones team played phenomenal um but i found that we were always kind of in the hunt for a steal and um they were able to you know uh, score one, and we kept the game, you know, relatively close. If you're just looking at, you know, scoring ones back and forth, essentially. After that point, we scored a couple of deuces to try and tighten it up, um, and I thought we might be able to get the steal in the last end to to force an extra. But uh, yeah, I think um, when we debriefed that game afterwards, it really was just that one end that we talked about, um, and I think it's just really about maybe we were playing a little bit too aggressive um, when we weren't 100% comfortable with the ice at that time. So um, just a learning a learning um, opportunity for going forward.
0: I'm not going to lie, Carrie. There were some pretty perplexed looks on the face of the players on just about each of the teams that made it to the second weekend of play in Kamloops. It looked like the ice was changing on you and the other teams when the crowds got bigger, and there was only one or two games on the ice at the same time.
1: I'd definitely say the uh, speed in the ice Got extremely fast, as you could tell. Some of my uh, draws are were quite heavy, <laughs> um, but um, earlier in the week they had some rain and things like that, so the ice was um, a little more slower than um, than it was towards the end. So, in the end, we were looking at like fifteen five to drag to t, but earlier in the week we're looking at like fourteen. 14- two three ish so yeah there was just uh, quite a big difference there and uh just mentally knowing that how quick that is and how slow you have to kick out it's it's tough and then you just add a little too much and you're like oh man there it goes so um yeah it's a pretty
0: touchy game i mean at one point the mics picked up val saying she didn't think she could slide out of the hack any slower without tipping over
1: <laughs> yeah, I threw a guard and um, it was like I felt like I was like just like a turtle coming out of the hack and it was still like a like a two guard like and I felt like slow and the girls laughed. They're like, well, you said to throw an 18. You threw like a 17.5. So it was very close. <laughs>
0: Shannon, most people will remember the uh, score of five that your team scored in the ninth end to win the game of the championship final, but the turning point may have been the fifth end when you got a big miss from Jen, and it gave you a 4-2 lead heading into the break. Yeah,
2: absolutely, and it kind of came out of nowhere, but um, I know we all went into that fifth end break feeling a little lighter, and that we had... Um, some breathing room uh, because it had been such a tight game and we kind of got away with a couple ends early where um, there could have been a multiple score against us. So, um, yeah, it was um, very fortunate on our end and definitely gave us a boost going into the last half to uh, really finish off the game strong.
0: So, Kerry, you went into the week as a three-time defending champs, and you were looking to tie Colleen Jones and her team from the early 2000s with four straight Scotties win. Tell me about tying Colleen with your fourth straight title in Kamloops.
1: It's exciting. You you want, like, when I started, like, dreaming big of what I wanted to do with my curling career, um, I never dreamt that I would be um, either tying records or even attempting to set records. So um, it's pretty amazing, and um, uh, it just shows how much hard work and dedication that you have to do to put into this game and uh, – this team has definitely done that. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's amazing to be up in the record books with uh, Colleen Jones. I remember watching her win her titles, and uh, it's, it's amazing.
0: Shannon, you might not remember this, but the first time you were on the podcast was in the lead up to the 2017 pre-trials. You were skipping your own team at the time and you'd had a solid season, but I'm not sure anyone would have predicted what was coming for you. Had I told you during that first conversation we had that you would win five of the next six Scotties, what would have been your reaction? I don't know if I would have believed
2: you. It's um, That's pretty crazy, especially when you put it into that perspective. Um, yeah, it's unbelievable. I... I'm just, I just have a lot of gratitude for the, the teammates that I've had on, you know, the two teams that I've won with. Like it, the talent is unbelievable um, on the, the team. And like Carrie said, we, we don't do this alone and we do it together and um, put a lot of hard work in and it's just pretty special.
0: Carrie, as you know, one of the perks of winning the Scotties is that you get to represent Canada at the World Championships. Now, I'm assuming that your team feels like it has some unfinished business at Worlds.
1: Yes, um, we definitely uh, want to try and bring home gold for Canada last year. We just let it slip through our fingers a little bit, so uh, we learned from that. And uh, yeah, we're just going to go out there and give it our all. And we got a lot of uh, family support coming with us, so that's pretty exciting.
0: So, Kerry, just about every player I interview before a big event tells me that they don't look at their schedules ahead of time, but they all do. Believe me, I, I know that you all do. Your team has a bye in the first draw of the Women's Worlds. Then you play Team Hasselberg of Sweden in draw two. Now, would you have preferred playing in that opening draw to get your legs underneath you at the same time as the other teams? Because when you play Team Hasselberg in that second draw, they will have gotten a feel for the ice because they're playing in that first draw.
1: Yeah, it's kind of similar to when we were in the bubble. We played Sweden our first game as well. So um, we've played them quite a few times and uh, we know what to expect. So uh, since they've been on the ice, we'll probably just uh, ease into it a little bit, but we'll see. We'll see how good our practice is and how comfortable we feel with the ice and uh, then we'll go from there.
0: Finally, Shannon, the two Canadian teams that represented Canada at the World Juniors in Germany had a rough week. And I I know that a few keyboard warriors from Canada had some things to say about it. You've experienced some very disappointing losses in your career, losing the Canadian Junior Finals two years in a row. And your current team had a rough week at your first Worlds inside the Calgary bubble. I'm just wondering if you would have some words of wisdom for Team Rooney and Team Deschenes after the week they had representing Canada in Germany at the World Juniors.
2: Yeah, it's uh, definitely challenging. I go back to our first world championships as a team in the bubble in Calgary and and just how we had a rough start. And I think we were all really um, battling through that week. Um, And we know that we got some uh, some interesting um, fan reactions on um, social media, although I never (laughs) – I was too scared to look. Um, So I just – Want to say that you know all of Canada is behind you. Um, the curling community is behind you. And um, at the end of the day, um, next season is a new season, and you have a brand new opportunity to you know grow and and improve. And and um, when I reflect back to juniors, I yeah, I lost the the Canadian Junior Final two years in a row, and and at the time, those losses were absolutely heartbreaking to me and it felt like the end of the world because juniors you know it has that end date but once you get into you know the men's and women's scene um there's a lot of freedom with the fact that you don't have this um you're not aging out of anything ever so you have all this time to grow and become a better curler and to learn and to just figure out who you are as a person and as an athlete
0: and um just to really embrace that going forward. What about you, Carrie? Any words of wisdom for Team Rooney and Team DeShang?
1: Yeah, I know it's uh, like bringing us back to the bubble. Like I was extremely hard on myself. Um, got a lot of not so nice messages. And uh, you know what? You got to just uh, focus on yourself and your team and uh, and learn from uh, what you did and, and and what you've even accomplished. Like it's... You, to get there, it's, it's tough. And, um, you just can't, uh, can't give up. You got to keep working hard. I know we've had so many devastating losses and, uh, uh, myself and my team never, ever gave up on each other. And we just kept working hard in the off season and, uh, learning from our mistakes and, uh, growing as a team. So you just got to put all that negativity behind you and just, um, and just keep pushing forward.
0: So a quick note for our audience, Uh, I was in contact with Carrie following our interview and she confirmed that Brienne Harris is expected to play throughout the women's worlds and that Kristen Karwaki will be the alternate for Team Anderson in Sweden as she was for the team at the Scotties in Kamloops. For those that are unfamiliar with Kristen Karwaki, she has been the alternate for Team Anderson at the 2021 and 2022 World Championships. She's also the lead for Nancy Martin's team, which lost in this year's provincial final in Saskatchewan. My next guest this week is Briar and world champion Rick Lang, who is best known these days as the coach for Team McCarville. Rick and I have a frank discussion about Team McCarville. We also discuss coaching, and he also shares what he believes might be the biggest challenges to face David Murdoch when he steps into the role of director of high performance at Curling Canada. So, Rick, uh, you and I are chatting about a week or so after the end of the Scotties, where Team McCarville, the team you've coached for years, had another close week at the Scotties, only to fall short again on playoff weekend. Can you walk us through the week from your perspective on Team McCarville's bench?
3: Yeah, um, well, you're absolutely right, Frank. Uh, you, you summarized that very well. Um, certainly disappointed with our performance. You know, we all were on uh, on the Saturday and Sunday when, when uh, it was crunch time and we really needed to perform. Uh, but actually uh extremely pleased with our performance up till then. You know, we, uh, we were in an extremely tough pool. People were calling it the pool of death. And uh, we won that pool, um, you know, and we won it um, in a very solid fashion, I thought. I thought our performance on a number of levels improved over previous years. Um, we had a number of things that we worked on this year. We wanted to improve our offense. We wanted to improve our draw game. And uh, those numbers were way up. And we also were solid. Like, we've usually kind of limped into the playoffs just uh, being very tired, uh, you know, get into a tiebreaker and then just not have the energy we need. Whereas this time we uh, went in flying really high, I thought. And, uh, you know, with a 7-8-1 and one record, 7-1 uh, record, <laughs> have trouble remembering now exactly, but uh, winning that pool was huge. And then we played Nova Scotia on the Friday night and they were a hot team that day. Um, and we played an exceptional game on Friday night, probably our best game of the week. So I thought we were really well positioned to um, have a really strong performance on the weekend, but um, you know, as the rest of the world saw, we didn't uh, and we're all really disappointed in that we thought we played uh you know, um, really underperformed, actually, on a number of levels. And we really got to take a look at that and figure out why. But i uh, very proud of our performance during the week. Um, the things we had worked on came to fruition. Um, and, uh, you know, we beat a lot of great teams, a lot of great teams that are ranked uh, very high in the world, uh, you know, we beat. So we we can be very proud of that.
0: Rick, one of the more tired narratives in Canadian curling is Team McCarvel's schedule, with the team uh, choosing many years ago to play a limited number of events each season to ensure a better life balance. As good as Team McCarville is, I've heard from many other players that they think McCarville's problem might be, their biggest problem might be the fact that the only time they ever get high-pressure reps is when they get to the Scotties each year. And if playing more each year is not an option for the team, then... How do you go about filling that gap about getting them more high-pressure reps?
3: So, really, you are asking the same question, right? And it it deserves to be asked, and I'm not, I'm not dodging it. But um, at the beginning, you said about the life balance, and this team made that decision um, quite some time ago, like literally several years ago. And when Kendra came on the team, that we were all on the same page that you know our goal is to be a top high-performance team, and if we can't put together a schedule. of a lot of games, then the only thing we can make up for is by doing it through um, out-training, out-practicing everyone else, uh, being technically better. And you know what? I um, We can't play more games. Um, you know, when people say, why don't you? Th- that decision's been taken and we accept it. Um, the team just took three weeks off work, a week for the provincial, took a full week, and two weeks for the Scottish. We left on Wednesday. We got back Tuesday night. Uh so, in most people's lives, that's three weeks off work and vacation and time away from your other commitments um and we have full other commitments you know they're all full employed they have families and children, so the question uh is that when you can't play, then what can you do, which is where your question ended up <laughs> sorry, ended up being and um yeah, it's hard to make up for that gap you know we we would admit that that teams that get to play a lot. But, you know, I think the perfect model would be a combination of what we do and what those other teams do. Um, take your top time, top five teams in Canada. Um, we beat them regularly. Well, I marvel at that, that we can do that. And why can we do that? Uh, because we outwork them in many, many ways. And we're open to coaching. We're open to training. And uh, they may say, oh, you don't, you know, look at the time we put in. But I would I would venture that we put in a lot more training. I call it training time, not practice. To me, practice is kind of when you go to the club and you shoot rocks for half an hour to kind of keep your timing. Yeah, when we train, we train to be better all the time, and we are open to trying to match each other's deliveries and be technically correct as we can. I think a lot of other teams in Canada, and I'm not insulting them because they're all great, but they kind of throw the rock the way they throw the rock, and they say, well, I've been doing this forever. This is the way I play. Um, I think the top teams in the world are very different than that. They've developed technical excellence. So, yeah, the perfect model would be for us to be able to go to eight spiels a year and time it out perfectly and still do all the training we have. But that's not the reality that we have. And uh, that's not the reality we want. Uh, We don't want to be away that much. Uh, from our um, you know family and and home lives and uh, so yeah it's a, it's a valid question everybody says it and it's a uh, it's a big challenge and every year we try to ask ourselves that question how we can make it up and uh, we clearly haven't come up with the answer to winning that championship yet but we've come up with an answer that puts us in the top three in Canada in the last six national events we have played which I think is remarkable.
0: There is also a narrative out there, Rick, that the team's lack of playing in big events each year makes the grind of Scotty's week more taxing on Team McCarville, and that they're more physically and mentally exhausted by the time they get to the playoffs than some of the other teams that play more throughout the year at events like the, um, like the Canada Cup and, uh, and, the, and the Slams, as examples.
3: So, so my counter to that, when we went to the trials last year, we were playing against five or six teams in the field of nine that had geared their entire lives to be prepared for that weekend, right? So so what I'm saying is um, they had geared everything, including hundreds of thousands of dollars from Curling Canada on the podium towards their performance at that trials. And we beat... Of those six top teams, we finished ahead of three of them and in the top three. Um, I would venture to say that they were exhausted. There there was teams there that looked so tired and worn out um, and did not perform well. So when I say it's a combination of both, I think that the chase for points and the four-year grind that teams put themselves through actually detracts from their performance. And um, many of the Euros and, and world teams, they don't have the national championships and the provincial championships to go through or to get points to be in the top. They don't have to chase as much as we do. Um, and they can they can make their schedules uh, a lot better than we do. So, yeah, um, are we tired at the end? Maybe mentally, maybe that that's part of it. Maybe uh, the lack of experience, uh, you know, in the big games. Absolutely, I'll, you know, I grant that hurts us. Um, but that's we don't have another option, so we have to work at attacking it in the best way that we can. And uh, I'd love, uh, like I said, I'd love to be on a develop a more well, well, well rounded schedule for them, but it's just not going to happen. So we have to work with what we've got.
0: All right, Rick. Enough of discussing the tired old narratives uh, regarding Tim McCarroll. I'm sure you're uh, sick and tired of hearing about it.
3: And I don't mind being asked. Don't I, I? Don't take offense to it. It's just that I, I'm, I think the question that has to be asked is. Why don't other teams do what we do?
0: Rick, one of the things that you worked on while you were with Curling Canada was the High Performance Consulting Program, which has opened the door to some of Canada's top curlers to coach without having to take the various levels of coaching certification. The result has been that a number of current or former curlers are now actively coaching teams. Players such as Reed Gruthers and Team Anderson, uh, with Team Anderson, pardon me, and Ryan Fry with Team Holman are but two examples. How proud are you of the work that went into that program now that you can see it start bearing fruit?
3: Yeah, you know, it's... um just when I was kind of finishing my stint with curling Canada uh, with the national team program, uh, a number of coaches that were working at the time, Marcel rock being one of them identified that, that they couldn't or weren't going to be continuing on um, just based on the fact that they had to get all the certification and that they're, they they were not in a position to do that. And, you know, they weren't making a living at this and yet they had to kind of go out and, and, and get that, that training. And they weren't going to do it or they weren't in a position to do it. And in talking to Jerry Peckham, you know, our high performance director, there was an acknowledgement that Canada just has obviously this wealth of incredible talent over the years um, and people that have done it before, you know, been there and won. And uh, when we created the program, we, we really set a high standard as to who would be eligible to be a consultant. You know, it wasn't, just that you showed that you're a competitive curler with some success. You know, you had to be a competitive curler with extremely high success. You had to be a Scotties winner, a Briar winner, a world champion, that kind of thing. So, you know, it's an exclusive uh, group, but we actually have 40 people signed up now um, that are qualified as high performance consultants in Canada. Uh, half women, half men, which is interesting. And I, uh, they, you know, they're available to be able to be on the bench to support teams and help at our national championships. Um, it's also, we all made the decision at the time, it wouldn't apply to developmental coaching. So university, uh, junior curling and that, these people aren't, aren't enabled, allowed through our program to do that. Um, so they have to get their certification if you're going to coach at that level. Um, so I, I'm very happy with it. I, I, I do think that Taking advantage of the uh the expertise that's out there um you know opening the door for some of these uh people with wonderful experience and a and a wealth of knowledge um and also a lot of them you know once the door is open and they see it they they want to get further education and you know they want to get their certification a lot of them and they've carried on to take the uh you know coaching canada certification programs which is obviously going to only enhance them so i'm really pleased that teams are able to uh have these people on their bench and uh and and really support them and and get those people to contribute to success for canadian curling
0: What I find interesting about the coaches at events like the Scotties and Briar Rick are that they all seem to fall in a few different categories. Some teams like Dunstone and Cooey have sports psychologists with them on the bench. Other teams like Anderson and Holman have gone with active players, uh, Rick Carruthers with team Anderson and Ryan Fry with team Holman. uh, While several other teams have coaches with a bunch of experience in the men's or women's game. Uh, Does it come down to teams selecting someone to fill a gap that exists in their team structure?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, No, I think you're right on with that. Uh, Teams, Want coaches that fill gaps in their needs, and and there's a variety of them out there, um, and and filling different roles. Uh, teams know often know, and in consultation with us when I was at Kermit Canada, we'd talk about what their gaps were and what they needed, and what we could do to support them, and having someone on the bench that that would meet their needs. To be honest with you, I think there's very few coaches um in the game today that kind of fill the what people often think of as a coach in a lot of sports that would direct them in their practices, direct them in their technical development, direct them how they play the game and their game calling, or at least a system in all those areas, because most of the players that, we're watching this week in the briar are highly experienced and, you know, um, have a highly developed game, a game plan and ability. So they're often looking for that extra edge with a, with a mental performance consultant, uh, which Canada approves them being on the bench because teams want them there and they need them there during game time. So, yeah, I think teams uh, it's a different sport that way. We don't have coaches that kind of control the show, you know, Um, teams pick coaches to fill certain roles as you were asking and then the often the coaches take direction from the teams as what do you want me to do for you and how can I best support you in that role uh, which is good um, but at times I think that international coaches um, play a far more active role in the entire team development and I think that can be a benefit as well. One of the
0: stories that received a lot of attention in Canadian curling recently was the fact that both our junior men's and junior women's teams struggled at Worlds and Canada was dropped to the B division for the 2024 Junior Worlds. My question to you, Rick, as an experienced curling coach is this. It has to be difficult for a team to win a national championship and then have to wait 11 months before they represent their country at Worlds. I've always found that one of the keys for teams when they compete at Worlds representing Canada Uh, a few weeks after the Briar or Scotties is that they often can maintain their groove or their mojo for those few weeks. It must be a lot harder to find that form and that groove, that mojo, whatever you want to call it, when you have to represent Canada 11 months or so after winning the national championship.
3: Uh for sure. That's um, you know, I actually have a personal experience with that and it was the opposite of juniors. It was our seniors and we won Canada, Canadian seniors. It was late in the year, I believe, April, but then we didn't play the worlds till the next February, I believe and uh, you know what we uh just like you say we did not have it was really tough to train for that and have competitive games that really meant something uh, in preparing for the worlds and we lost a bit of our mojo for sure and we didn't play as well that whole worlds we uh we almost pulled it off we lost the gold medal game but um i felt that at the time we were a little little bit flat that much later so so that is a factor for sure um i do like the canadian juniors being later in the year because it used to be that uh, you used to play your junior provincials in December, and basically your year was over And uh, in terms of competitive play. And, you know, I really like the fact that the juniors play all year now and have a long season and can look forward to a national later in the year. But uh, you're right, that doesn't bode well, perhaps internationally. And, of course, with the age issue that you throw in there as well, it makes a big difference. So, um, yeah, I really felt for those kids representing Canada on international scale in any competition is enormous pressure these days. You know, I always compare it to hockey and say, you know, we've got a huge amount of depth in Canada, but our top teams are, are on par with the top teams from other countries, but Canada still expects us to win all the time. And, and uh that's, that's enormous pressure, especially on kids, uh, you know, who are out there hopefully enjoying the game and having some fun while they're playing. So, you know, I hope those kids realize they did a great job representing Canada and that, you know, they worked hard at their game and I hope they can continue to develop and stay in the game because I wouldn't want something like that kind of experience to, you know, mar their uh, overall great experience of traveling the world and winning Canadian championship.
0: You just provided me with a great segue to something else I wanted to discuss with you, Rick. We often hear that other countries have caught up to Canada and curling, and the, the counter you often hear is, yeah, but Canada has more depth, which is great if the top 64 teams in the world or the top 32 teams in the world were invited to the Olympics and World Championships, which would mean that Canada would have more opportunities to reach the podium. But Canada can only send one team to the Worlds and one team to the Olympics. Are we at a point, Rick, where the Canadian curling community has to accept the fact that its days of dominating world competitions are over once and for all?
3: Great question. Of course, that's the $64 million question, isn't it? Um, I, I, I absolutely agree with you that the top teams from around the world are as good as our top teams are without a doubt, um. I honestly would say 15, 20 years ago, I thought if you put the top women's teams from around the world in our Scotties, that they're not going to win that competition. And I also felt the same way about the Briar 15, 20 years ago that you put the top teams in the world in the Briar and they had to go through that grind. They're not going to win it. Um, that's completely different now. I think you put Bruce Mowat or Teren Zoni in our national championships and you're going to pick them to be in the top two. Um, so they, they have upped their game. There's no doubt about it. and but they have the perfect scenario to do it. When, when I talked earlier about um, that teams ideally would have a perfect schedule and a great training schedule, that's what the uh, British or Scottish teams have right now. Um, they, they all live in the same place. They curl in a training center together. They start in the summer, um, and they work at their game. They just don't show up and say, oh, this is the way I throw the rock. So, you know, they, they match to each other other they're technically excellent um i think they're more technically excellent than than most of our canadian teams and now it's starting to show because they have the experience they play in canada and they have the technical excellence to go with it so um uh, that's hard to duplicate in canada um many of our, our teams live miles and miles apart i mean we we struggle a bit with team mccarville as well uh kendra lives 12 hour drive away so it's a flight and uh you know that Making the training uh, equivalent for all four members of our team is a challenge, and almost every Canadian team has that challenge, Um, along with the fact that they're extremely busy schedules, running from spiel to spiel, competition to competition. You know, I've always thought that um, professional athletes literally spend 90% of their time training and 10% of their time playing. If you look at an NHL hockey player, he's on the ice literally for – maybe 25 minutes a week, uh, 30 minutes a week. If you're a defenseman, maybe, you know, 40 or 50. And they're training 10 hours a week uh, and practicing and working on their game. Uh, Curlers are playing 90% of their time. uh, um, Traditionally, I'm I'm talking about 90% of their time is in-game and 10% of their time is spent really training and practicing. And I think that uh, many of the European teams have turned that around and uh have, have achieved greater technical excellence. There's a few teams in Canada. Um uh, I'm not gonna name names, but I think they do work hard technically at their game and they prioritize that. And I think it shows in the outcomes. So um that's you know that's what I think that we have to expect from our teams um as opposed to just having them go in 16 competitions a year and saying, man, look how hard they're working.
0: And finally, Rick, uh, you just mentioned the success of the Scottish program a minute or so ago, which provides me with yet another great segue. Curling Canada recently announced that David Murdoch will serve as the new director of high performance for Curling Canada. Were you surprised that Curling Canada hired a non-Canadian, even one as experienced as uh, David Murdoch, to fill the role? And what do you believe uh, will be Murdoch's main areas of focus, or what does he need to focus on when he first uh, starts in his new position?
3: Yeah, okay. I'd I just like to start by saying uh, tip of the hat uh, to Jerry Peckham. You know, I had the privilege of working with Jerry. He's been our high-performance director in Canada for, gosh, I don't know how long. Um, the man is an absolute uh, wise guru <laughs> of the sport. And, I, you know, he's led uh, that balance of keeping Canada's systems in place with winning medals uh, for a long, long time. And uh, I think he, he's brilliant, and uh, he's really going to be missed. Uh, his replacement. uh, I was surprised. Sure. Um, Just, it's not a name that I would have put down thinking of who in Canada, but I also didn't have anybody thinking that I wasn't thinking anybody else. I just didn't think there was anybody that I knew that was, you know, really in a position to just walk into that job as such. It's really quite a political job. People don't realize Um, you're dealing with a lot of funders and national sport bodies uh, that have expectations of you as well as the curling community. So, you know, you really have to be um, good at getting along with people and meeting their needs and, and kind of presenting our sport very well. So there's that aspect that, that a lot of people aren't aware of. Um, I've known David for a long time, um, and I got to know him really quite well when he was the team leader of the European or world team at Continental Cups for several years. And I was in that position for North America. And so we went head to head, just let David know that we won most of those, but um, you know, we, uh, he's a, he's a really great person. I think he's very personal. I think he's knowledgeable. Um, and I think that uh, he will be well liked and respected by Canadian curling. Um So, you know, yeah, a little surprised, but, you know, if you're taking applications and you see his application there, you're going to you're going to pay attention to it. And he obviously uh, impressed the hiring. And I think he comes with great credentials. So, um, you know, I think the current world in Canada is going to uh current community, I should say, in Canada is going to really benefit from his presence. Um He's got his work cut out for him because he's going into a system that is very, very different than his, obviously. Um I think if you narrowed Canada's system down to one or two teams and said, Okay, these are our teams, obviously you run the risk of um putting the whole system at risk in terms of the Briar that's on right now and the Scotties. If those those are the greatest curling competitions in the world, uh, from the perspective of the interest in them, the the follow the following that they have, uh the financial support that they provide to curling Canada, they're amazing events and I would like most other curlers, hate to see those go away at the cost of, uh, you know, winning uh, winning medals at, at the Olympics for Canada. So uh, he's going to walk a fine line there. He's not going to have the ideal system, honestly, that he that he was able to create and do so well at in Scotland. And uh, I wish him luck with it. I hope that uh, solutions are found because I do think that. Um, I'm a very proud Canadian curler. I love uh, when Canadians win world championships. And I hope no matter who's there, I'm always hoping for them. So I I just hope that uh, David, along with everyone else at Curling Canada, can come up with some really creative ideas of making sure that our teams are the best.
0: That does it for this week's episode. A huge thank you to Carrie Anderson, Shannon Burchard, and Rick Lang for joining me this week. Also, don't forget to check out our partners and friends in the Curling Podcast Network, the Two Girls in the Game Podcast, the Rock Logic Podcast, and the Curling Legends Podcast. I'm Frank Rock, and you're listening to the From the Hack Curling Podcast, part of the Curling News and Sports Illustrated Partnership.